Welcome to another edition of My View from the Top. I'm John Morris, and joined as always, Bishop Gregory Parks, Bishop of the Diocese of St. Petersburg. Bishop, it's been a very busy last couple of weeks since really the last month since you and I have sat down to talk. Recently, Pope Francis had made a change in the catechism regarding capital punishment and the Catholic Church. A lot of people always thought that the Catholic Church was against the death penalty, but that that's not always the case, I, I don't guess. What, what's your take? Well, John, it's good to be with you again, and you are correct. Uh, Pope Francis recently proposed a change to the catechism and specifically to the Church's teaching on capital punishment. The present catechism spoke about rare cases or instances where it might be permissible to execute somebody in order to protect society. However, with current advancements in the penal system and our prisons, correctional institutes all over the world, there really is virtually nowhere that society cannot be kept safe from an offender. So what the Holy Father has said, and this follows the uh, upon the thought of uh, both St. John Paul II and Evangelium Vitae, the Gospel of Life, as well as the thought of Pope Emeritus Benedict, is that the death penalty or capital punishment is to be considered inadmissible. That's the key word. In other words, that there really are no circumstances where the death penalty should be utilized as a punishment for someone. The reason for that, John, is that we believe that every human being has some inherent dignity because we are created by God. So even someone who takes a life or commits some type of uh, atrocity is not beyond redemption. And we believe that they should be given the opportunity to repent and to be redeemed. So that's why we, we no longer believe that the death penalty is an acceptable means of punishment. Now, since that uh, pronunciation by Pope Francis, Jose Antonio Jimenez was scheduled to be executed this past Tuesday. However, uh, Governor Rick Scott spared him from that, uh, signed a stay. Do you think that was in the back of his mind, even though Rick Scott may not a Catholic and follow the teachings of the church? Do you think there's been some societal change to make him think about this, or do you think it was just a legal matter? Well, the bishops of Florida, every year we meet with Governor Scott uh, up in Tallahassee during Catholic days at the Capitol. He has an individual meeting with with all the bishops. And every year we bring up this issue uh, of capital punishment because, as you know, uh, Florida and probably Texas are the two states that execute the most people in our country. And um, while the governor is, uh, for the most part, pro-life, on this issue, he feels as governor, it's his responsibility to uphold the law and to follow through on the um, punishment or the judgment that someone has received. I'd like to think that his uh, issuing a stay or there being a stay issued in this case was due to the influence of the bishops. We always send a letter before every scheduled uh, execution uh, asking him to do so, that perhaps he might be changing his mind. Uh, Only time will tell and we'll just have to wait and see. But for the moment, uh, that was good news. And the other side of the coin, too, is that the fact that there are people on death row that have been exonerated. They have later on after DNA testing and other evidence has come forward, then in fact they were innocent. And we have interviewed some of those people right here in our own radio station. That's very, very true with the advancements in DNA. As you said, innocent people have been found. And who knows how many were executed that were innocent that, that were not able to be saved. I have visited uh, death row 
in Stark. I've actually visited there as a bishop and distributed communion and celebrated the sacrament of confirmation with one person on death row. And I can tell you that it's not a nice place. Um, I visited there in August. There is no air conditioning there. They have some fans, but I mean, the, the heat is oppressive. So for anyone that might think that prisoners, when they are incarcerated, are, are living you know, a, a nice life or a luxurious, a comfortable life, I, I can assure them that, that that is not the case. And for somebody to be uh, in prison for life is truly a punishment. What did that visit do for you personally? I mean, I know you probably visited jails and going on death row, but I can tell you my experience was that it shook me up. How did this affect you as priest, as a bishop? Well, you hear about people on death row and those that are executed, but to actually meet them and have the opportunity to speak with them and to pray with them, to provide the sacraments to them, it is a very moving experience because you realize that it's a human being. So I would say, yes, we, we of course, uh, all of us need to be accountable for our actions, and there are consequences to pay. But when I visit, have always visited prisons, I never ask somebody, why are you here? What I ask is, how are you doing? And what can I do for you? Can I pray for you? Can I pray with you? So again, you see the humanness uh, that sometimes on the news or in the newspaper you wouldn't be able to encounter. I'm going to switch gears a little bit here now because uh, while people are on death row in Stark, there are other people in our community that have been given a death sentence, maybe a bad medical report that comes out, and they don't have too long. We have a lot of priests, a lot of lay people that go make hospital visits, and we have a lot of Catholics that are involved in the medical profession, doctors and, and nurses and such. You just had a recently celebrated what we call the White Mass and tell us a little bit about that and, and why you do it annually. Sure. So the, the annual White Mass is an opportunity for myself as the bishop and priests of our diocese to gather with our doctors and nurses, those involved in the, in the health services profession, to first of all, to recognize and to, to thank them for what they do, but most importantly, to pray for them. The reason it's called the White Mass is because of the white lab coats or medical uh, coats that, that doctors typically wear. And even at this Mass, they do wear them into church that day. So, But it's just an opportunity really to pray for them and to bless them in their profession. I found it interesting. I, I recently had uh, a, a sick stepfather, but I remember my mom telling me that when the physician came in to see him, he asked them, do you mind if we pray together? And I think that's a great testament and a great witness to what's going on in our medical field today. Sure. And I know a lot of doctors that do pray. They pray before they perform a surgery or before they have a difficult consultation with someone. Um, I've spoken with doctors who believe in miracles because there is no medical explanation for a healing that might have taken place or uh, some, some positive thing that happened in somebody's treatment. So doctors are people of faith, and I would think that would be very important uh, for them in that profession. School started back the other day, and our colleges start back here in the next week or so. There's been a lot of talk about school security, especially uh, in light of late last year, right before the school ended, there was a, a shooting down on the other side of the state. And so a lot of parents are concerned about their well-being of their children this year. A lot of local municipalities have had to budget to have extra security 
What about those schools here in the Diocese of St. Petersburg? Has that impacted us? Well, it, it sure has. In fact, um, you know, our top priority with regard to education is to make sure uh, that our students have a safe place in which to come every day to school uh, and that they feel safe while they're at school. So all of our schools and administration have undergone training, security training, since the uh, Parkland shooting, which is what you're referring to. And uh, we've made some changes, you know, both in procedures, but also a number of our schools actually do currently have security resource officers uh, that are on campus throughout the day and would be able to assist in the case of an emergency or somebody who's trying to do harm to our students. Does this impact our budget at all to have uh, resource officers within our schools? I would say, John, it probably would be minimal, and and that's probably the least important consideration is the the cost because, again, protecting our children and providing a safe environment is of the utmost importance. I can tell you uh, of the few Catholic schools that I have been around in the diocese, it's like trying to get into Fort Knox. You you, you really uh, you can't – they've got everything locked down – to um, to protect the kids. I mean, it's all fenced in, and uh, you've got to be buzzed in, and then they have to almost do a background check for you to get past the secretary. <laughs> and I experienced that as well, John, and I'm the bishop. <laughs> Your picture's on the wall by the secretary usually. Right? But uh, it's better to be safe than sorry, mm-hmm. and again, to, to keep our kids safe. Switching gears now, there was a lot in the news made over the last couple of weeks, but especially this week uh, regarding the Pennsylvania Attorney General report about a number of priests, bishops, cover-up of abuse situations that go back 70 years. Before we get into all that minutiae, and we've seen a lot of it in the news, how are you doing with this personally? Well, I would say, um, you know, as a bishop, the the past few weeks uh, have been difficult on on a very personal level and spiritual level to see, you know, brother bishops being accused, credibly accused, of inappropriate behavior, uh, and then of course, brother priests in the the grand jury report that you that you referenced. So it's um, it's difficult. I, I I feel a certain sadness. I feel anger, a sense of betrayal with regard to my ministry and to the ministry in general. But I know that we will work through this difficult time, and um, my hope and my expectation is that the church will emerge stronger after this. We're recording this. So this is the the day that we're recording is the day after the report came out. Have you heard from any of your brother priests here in the diocese? Not not specifically from any priests here in our diocese, but I have friends who are priests throughout the country and over the last couple of weeks we have been in communication and trying to support one another and strengthen one another in our own ministry. Uh, as we seek to, you know, faithfully take part in our ministry, but also obviously, you know, we want to pray for the victims, those that have been, their lives have been affected, have been uh, damaged, you know, irreparably by these acts, and to pray for them and their families. How does that report that came out affect, or does it, the Diocese of St. Petersburg? Well, I think for myself, I mean, we we have very um, strong safeguards in place by by which we strive to keep uh, our children, our young people, vulnerable adults, you know, the elderly, those who um, have physical disabilities, any vulnerable population. uh, We have measures in place uh, to protect them. But it really enforces and stresses my recommitment to ensuring uh, that those populations, that our children are kept safe. 
when Cardinal McCarrick was uh, removed from office and, and the Holy Father uh, asked him to come back, I believe, to Rome, I think, uh, to serve his sentence and await the canonical trial, Cardinal DiNardo here, the president of the USCCB, uh, released a statement. And I'm going to read some of that, so bear with me. First, I encourage my brother bishops as they stand ready in our local diocese to respond with compassion and justice to anyone who has been sexually abused or harassed by anyone in the church. We do whatever we can to accompany them. And that sort of addresses what you just said. My question would be, what are we currently doing here in the Diocese of St. Petersburg? First of all, to, to protect our children, what we do is when we have an individual, whether they be a staff member, somebody employed by one of our parishes or by the diocese, anybody involved in ministry with young people, with children, where they would have exposure to them, they are required to undergo a background check as well as fingerprinting to make sure that there is no prior history uh, of any incidences where they may have inappropriately acted towards children or even adults. Uh, So that's one thing that we do. We have a safeguard in place there. For those that have been victims of abuse or inappropriate behavior, uh, the church does reach out to them with compassion. And very often we will work with them. We will offer them counseling and spiritual support to see if we can help them to experience some healing that they might be able to move forward in their lives. If someone's listening and they have been somehow abused in the past, Do they contact the church first, or should they just go straight to the police? I would urge anyone who has been a victim of abuse by a member of the clergy or any representative of the church to contact law enforcement and also our victim assistance coordinator, and I can give the phone number for that, John. It's 866-407-4505. That's 866-407-4505. As well, if anyone is aware of abuse by a member of the church, the clergy, or a representative of the church, to also contact law enforcement and our victim assistance coordinator at that same number. I think that's where a lot of people are upset, is that people in high positions in the church knew of things going on and and didn't report it. They just sort of shuffled things on. And how does the the laity come to grasp with that loss of trust. Yeah, it's tragic. And we have to, there has to be accountability, particularly among bishops towards each other, but also towards their priests and priests for brother priests. So if somebody has firsthand knowledge of inappropriate behavior, I would say they have a moral obligation uh, to report that and not to try to conceal it or, or hide it. To, to brush it under the carpet, but rather to report it. Now, a lot of times individuals are hesitant to do that, to come forward, uh, especially if they're not sure or if it's just hearsay, if they've heard things, uh, they're afraid to come forward because they don't want to be put on the spot or they don't want to inappropriately damage somebody's good name. Right. Um, but if, you're, if you have any knowledge, again, firsthand knowledge of abuse, please come forward, contact law enforcement, and contact our victim assistance coordinator at the diocese. It's almost, when you just said that, it reminded me of 2001 when all these terrorist attacks were going on and the government was really pushing, if you see something, say something. 
And the same goes here. If you see something or suspect something, it's better to say it and report it and pray to God it's not a credible threat. Uh, Because as you and I were speaking at lunch today, there's a low bar set for priests these days uh, when those are accused. What, What was the term that you used? Well, for, for a priest to be removed from ministry, the accusation against them needs to have what's called the semblance of truth, meaning that it, it seems that it could be possible or that it could be true. Again, it's a, it's a pretty low bar, and what would happen is that would spark an investigation, initiate an investigation to get more details and to try to determine whether the uh, accusation is credible or not. Going on with uh, Cardinal DiNardo's letter, he said, third, the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops will pursue many questions surrounding uh, Archbishop McCarrick's conduct to the full extent of authority and where that authority finds its limits. The conference will advocate with those who do have authority. One way or another, we are determined to find out the truth in this matter. In years past, it's been the the bishops and the church that have investigated. I know that there's been a, a strong push toward getting more of the laity involved in the early going. Do you see that happening? I hope so. John, I think for the transparency of this process going forward and the investigation into the abuse, which will be looked at, it's critical, it's necessary to have uh, laity involved in that process so that it's not viewed as being a closed process, but transparent. And um, yeah, I mean, so I I think it's critical, and I I hope that that is the end result. What can the bishops, the priests, and the church do to win back the trust of the people, or the what to win back the people's trust of the of the church? I think most importantly, we we have to acknowledge our mistakes. Uh, We have to learn from our past mistakes, and we have to make corrections and adjustments in what we do in order to prevent these things from happening again. You know, the grand jury report uh, that we're speaking about in Pennsylvania, you know, documents, as you said, cases that are up to 70 years old. So a lot of the cases that you may be hearing about currently happened decades ago. Right. And I would like to think that since 2002, with the Charter for the Protection of, of Young People that was issued by the bishops back at that time, and again, some of the procedures and, and ways that we have of screening individuals who are involved in church ministry that I talked about earlier, uh, that those things have put us in a different place today. Not to say that anything is acceptable, it's tragic what has happened and I ask forgiveness uh, on behalf of my brother bishops, on behalf of priests who may never ask for that forgiveness from those victims whose lives have been, have been harmed, have been injured by these, these sinful acts. In your opinion, and I'm seeing this on social media and if anybody's following it, in your opinion, do you see any resignations coming down from the top? I mean, obviously everybody says, well, I even saw reports say, well, this is all Pope Francis doing. He had nothing to do with Pennsylvania. But there are things going on in other countries, um, and it seems like it's a volcano that's leaking you know, lava here. And where do we put the cap on this? Yeah, with regard to resignations, that is to be determined. I mean, that'll come as a result of further investigation into uh, who knew what and when. Uh, why they didn't act or why they acted in an inappropriate way to, to handle a, a, a case of abuse that they might have been made aware of. Um, so, the, no, the, that, that will occur, I think, over the coming uh, weeks and months and years. 
uh, to hopefully uh, root out or to, to cleanse the church uh, of individuals who really took advantage of their position, uh, bishops who didn't act appropriately when presented with a case of abuse. And so this process of purification, of cleansing, I, again, I, my hope and my prayer is that it will make the church stronger. What I would say to the faithful is, remember, our faith is in Jesus Christ. It's not in a particular priest or in a particular bishop, and priests and bishops are sinners like everyone else. It's unfortunate that some priests and bishops have used their position and their authority, that position of trust, to take advantage of others and particularly children. But we need your prayers. We all need your prayers that we might be the the good and holy and faithful uh, priests and bishops that we have been called to be and that you deserve. I was looking at a, a, a tweet that a priest from another diocese said. He says, like, we've given you every reason to hate us, but you still love us, and that blows my mind. And people responded to him by saying, because the, va- the vast majority are good, holy men as borne out uh, by lifelong experience in your company. We won't allow some of the evil men to deprive us of the most vital thing in our lives, that being Jesus Christ and the Eucharist. So it, it is much bigger than the transgression or the sins of a handful of people. And I know a handful is not 300. Yeah, no, John, I, I, you know, I say, I've said before that if, if we're looking for some proof uh, that the church is divinely guided by, by God and by the Holy Spirit, all we have to do, do is look at the church's history. If it was merely up to us as sinful human beings who um, serve in the church and we would have self-destructed years ago (laughs) Mm -hmm. uh, because the church in its history has gone through many difficult periods, but yet is sustained and continues to grow. And and that's because it's not about one person. It's about Jesus Christ. Do you see maybe this November at the conference, at the the big meeting with all the bishops, that someone would stand up and say, for the good of the church moving forward, if any of this body of men have in some way hidden or committed one of these acts, step forward now and resign. Will that question be asked? It very well might. In fact, back in 2002, uh, when Archbishop Gregory from Atlanta, who was the president of the Bishop's Conference at that time, presented the charter for the protection of young people, he said that very thing. He said, if there are any bishops here that are aware of any abuse that they personally have committed or have been complicit in, that they should resign immediately. And I I think that that expresses the zero tolerance that we as bishops need to have for these type of acts. In my opinion, there is no place in the church or in ministry for a bishop, a cardinal, an archbishop, a priest, a deacon, or anyone in church ministry, youth minister, so forth, who would use their position to take advantage of a child. I want you to share the words that you shared with me at lunch today about our Lord and how he was, he himself, God on earth, was betrayed. Sure. Well, when we think about it, when we talk about betrayal, we we need to look no further than Jesus himself. And we remember that he was betrayed uh, with a kiss by Judas, who was considered to be one of his closest followers at that time. So if our Lord was subject to that type of betrayal, 
why, why would we think today that, that we also, and that the church would not be betrayed by certain individuals? As we close this important program today, would you lead all of us in a prayer for healing and for guidance and for compassion for the victims of this horrific time? I'd be happy to, John, and I I think that'd be most appropriate. Let us pray. God, our Father, at this time we are saddened, we are angry, we are struggling to figure out why these atrocious acts have occurred and why those that have have been called to serve you have committed them. Father, we, we just ask for an outpouring of your Holy Spirit upon the church at this time. We ask your blessing and your healing power upon those whose lives have been affected by abuse. And we just pray that you may inspire, may lead and guide the bishops and the hierarchy of the church to learn from our mistakes, to act upon them, and to set a path forward in which we can truly engage in our mission of spreading the good news of Jesus Christ and of leading souls to heaven. We ask for your forgiveness, Father, and we just ask for your blessing this day. And may the blessing of Almighty God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit descend upon all and remain with you. Amen.